As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Part of the challenge in the current area is there's this perspective that just adding technology to a mix will make things better. I think the last you know two or three years has made people realize that technology plus humanity with no morals is not really a good combination. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Chris Lundberg is a technologist and political entrepreneur who founded the company now known as Salsa and a new one, Fracture. Chris's first company produces a contact management and emailing system used by many nonprofits and progressive campaigns. He refers to it as a CRM or customer relationship management system. Chris talks about starting and growing that business into a sizable franchise with his then wife, April. He recounts how they were later ousted from their own firm by the venture capitalists from whom they'd recently raised money to add more sales and marketing to the company. But Chris immediately bounced back from that and started a second company, Fracture, which is now doing well. Fracture helps organizations deploy a data infrastructure for automation, warehousing, and reporting so they can manage, combine, and use different data silos together. When you listen to Chris, you hear one of the more experienced and successful people in the political technology space and someone with strong opinions. I didn't agree with every single thing he had to say, but I very much admired how open he was and how willing to speak his mind on the current state of progressive political technology. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, please listen to my interview with Chris Lundberg of Fracture. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going, Nathaniel? <laughs> it's going pretty well. Um, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Uh, sure. So my name is Chris Lundberg. I um, was actually born in the D.C. area, but was quickly flown off by my parents overseas and grew up overseas. So I grew up in Yemen and Pakistan and Kenya uh, and a whole bunch of places. Came back here for high school, uh, went to a great school down in Virginia called Thomas Jefferson High. And um, from there, kind of started getting a little bit of a tech bent. I went on to Virginia Tech for college. I got degrees in aerospace engineering and mathematics and then hopped into the wide world of technology. I first went through some um, Silicon Valley ups and downs, uh, worked at Accenture for, for a few years. My partner at the time actually then um, wrote me into kind of progressive politics. 
Your partner at the time, would that mm-hmm. be April? April, yeah, April yes. Peterson, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you meet her? Well, maybe... Oh, yeah, so, so so we were in a personal relationship, and at the time, I was in the tech world, and she was in the nonprofit world, and, and she was mildly incensed at how much money it took to put up a, a standard website, a standard, you know, 13-page website. So she worked at an organization called Save Our Environment. Um, they were uh, spending half a million dollars a year in 2003 to sign some basic petition tools for Congress, right? I was really angry at that. I was super frustrated. Can you remember what that, what they were running? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, at the time it was a company called CTSG. They had contracted with an outside vendor to do it. For me as a young developer at the time, this is around 2003, give or take, this was extremely frustrating to see somebody spend this much money on what was a fairly, you know, straightforward set of tools and, and technologies. So to kind of resolve this, we started an organization called Democracy in Action. And the goal of Democracy in Action was really to make accessible all of these amazing online organizing tools uh, that previously only the largest groups had uh, had gotten access to. This is during the kind of the, the Dean timeframe. There's a lot of energy and political technology. It was leading up to George W.'s second election. So there's a lot of kind of progressive energy in developing new things. So we kind of got roped into this whole progressive movement of technology. And if I remember correctly, Democracy in Action was started as a nonprofit. Is mm-hmm. that right? That's right. Democracy in Action was a C3 nonprofit. We eventually got into uh, beyond petitions and into fundraising and email. We operated as a, um, a donor-advised fund, which was a mechanism by which people could give to Democracy in Action, and then we could then distribute that to the organizations who were organizing. What was sort of the founding story there? How, tell me how you get going at the very beginning. Uh, it was, you know, we just started it. Like, like, it was literally like, I was like, well, I can do this. And so I put together a quick demo for April and she didn't become a believer for six or ten months after that. But as soon as people started to sign on, we got a small, couple small little candidates, uh, a couple small organizations, uh, Save the Frogs, and a couple other little uh, little guys at the time. And that started to show that what we were producing was quality and able to both deliver messages to Congress, build a base of support. At the time, uh, as you probably remember, there was not a lot of knowledge about list building as a strategy, That uh, especially online. People didn't realize realize that the same tactics being used offline, they could also use for online organizing and, and that type of work. Did you have a background in that? Or was this you coming fresh to this, just sort of being the engineer? Yeah, totally fresh to this. We were yeah. doing a lot of online opinion research in the for-profit world using a lot of online techniques, but I was just an engineer. So so that was my, my role in this. But I also saw how far behind a lot of the nonprofit technology was behind kind of the current state of the art. Uh, we're I, there now, too, but we'll cover that in a little bit. <laughs> well, where did you get your ideas for what to put into the software? At that time, it was much more trying to make accessible technologies that already existed. So in this case, petition tools, there were some already out there, but they're extremely expensive. So it was how do we reduce the cost of what's already existing and kind of bring that to a more uh, available so level? Sort of took a look at what were there and kind of reproduced those sort of tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of it, and, and uh, tried to focus heavily on cost savings and be, being efficient and targeting a slightly different mid-market strategy than some of the high-end strategies at the time. So for our first set of tools in DIA and petitioning, that was kind of how we started. 
But we quickly started to push the tech and the, the bleeding edge of the tech farther beyond that. So down to state level targeting of congressmen, down to um, uh, delivering messages in new and u- unique fashion. So is that sort of like stuff that Capital Vantage was doing at the time? Some, yeah. The, yeah. yeah they were contemporaries of us uh, uh, at the time. There was, there was a number of folks in that time frame that kind of popped up doing similar types of technologies. Who, who, else, was, who else was around um, and about? Before Luminate, there was Get Active. Uh, so Get Active was in and around that time as well. So they started focusing on the high end of the market. Uh, they had been rebranded from some fun name, but then um, also Convio. Uh, so Convio then, over the next few years, uh, ended up buying out Get Active, and then they then got bought out themselves by Blackbaud. In the nonprofit space, there are quite a few tools. Those are some of the bigger players in the yeah. front. What was April's role in this? If you were doing the programming, I assume... Yeah. Yeah, she heavily focused on messaging, outreach, communications, that type of thing, uh, support operations, basically everything that was not kind of the tech side of things. Right. And um, was it just the two of you? For a while, for the beginning, it was yeah. just the two of us. We hired uh, Jason Zanone about a year in or so as we started to get up enough revenue, enough clients. But we were basically bootstrapped at that point. We tried to get some funding at the time, but uh, a lot of funders just didn't get tech. So 2005, 2006 era, it was just really a struggle. Well, you were point. kind of operating, is this right, as as a software company, even though you're formed as a nonprofit, mm-hmm. you were selling what you built mm-hmm. yep. as tech, just a, as the for-profit companies in the space were. Our initial vision combined kind of half vendor, half uh, organizing entity. The organizing entities had a hard time getting some traction with groups. Uh, so we tended to focus more on where we are seeing some real traction, uh, which is on the uh, on the nonprofit and progressive and candidate side of things. What was an ideal client for you back in that day? Oh, geez. At that point, anyone. <laughs> like, swear to God, anyone. Long tail of the, of the nonprofit space, more or less? Yeah, I mean, we would have picked up some big guys if we could. There were a couple groups. There was a the Mothers Opposing Bush. The mob was yeah. funny. But they, they ended up scaling fairly well and getting, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of folks organized at the time. So we, we ranged pretty far. As we grew and evolved, we started went through a couple of branding things. We started a company called Wired for Change. We were doing more political, which you can't do under the C3 brand, so we needed to start a company. So we started a company called Wired for Change that then was rebranded into Salsa Labs. And that's kind of how we, as we grew from three staff to 10 staff to 20 staff to 40 to 50, we started to go through some of these moving both up the chain of nonprofits, uh, working with bigger candidates, bigger entities broadening our tool set fairly extensively and kind of matured into uh, what's a much more modern kind of tech platform. Was some of your funding coming in as donations to the nonprofit or no. very little at all? No, we, mm-hmm. all, we, we took a, a small cut to cover our costs for um, uh, donation processing, uh, but we had no overage charges. So a lot of vendors these days we see will charge like a 5% when they only have to pay like 2.7, 2.8. Oh, I, I, meant that more, I meant more like people who contribute to nonprofits like they would to any any charity. No, I mean we. I think we got one donation for like a thousand bucks. Yeah, we were, we were like we didn't understand so, it. So it's, what was the yeah. what was the theory about making it a nonprofit then? At the time, there was a lot of pushback against vendors as a people who weren't in it for the right reasons. I guess for lack of a better phrase. 
now we have a lot more concepts um, to address that. The B corps, uh, things B -corps, like that. B corps, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but at the time, it, you were either a corporation or a nonprofit, and one was the do-gooder and one was not, and like that, there was a pretty big binary thing there. Was this your first company, or did you started other ones? No, this is the first one I had started. Yeah, uh, was one of the founders. So, what was that so, feeling of like now you're out in the world <laughs> with your own entity? How did that feel? It, it couldn't have been any other way, I guess, yeah. to be the, the the way to phrase it. It was like it wasn't even it wasn't even like a big decision point. It was just like, OK, well, we need to do this. Mm -hmm. So let's just do it. The corporate wrappings kind of came along for the ride about just trying to make something happen. I think if I tried to start a business with my wife, it would be <laughs> challenging, mm -hmm. like just because mm -hmm. of 24 hours a day. How did how did that work out? We split the business pretty well. One of the, you know, the marketing tech split was pretty good. We still got into some scenarios where it was a little more difficult. It did wear in our relationship. Um, and so that uh, when we eventually split, I think there was some history of only having had the company together. At some point, that kind of wound itself through. But that said, like, especially during that time, like, there was huge value in being able to have conversations oh, man. 16 hours a day. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a value to it, of course, as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So th there's downside, but there's, there's upside as well. And so. you and had you had were pretty much in accord on the vision for the business? Never. Really? No. no. The, I, I mean, I don't say never. I think that. We both grew up in kind of the same progressive environments. So we both had very similar perspectives on the challenges. Uh, and because of that, often came up with those similar ideas going forward. That said, what it was supposed to be, I think, was always something uh, kind of uh, in up in the air. Well, one of the things that uh, I remember about it at this phase was that it was a progressive shop, that mm -hmm. it chose not to serve clients that were on the right or I don't mm -hmm. know. How did you draw that line? What was... What was sure. the theory there? And this is carried through my, my the follow-on couple of companies as well. I believe that technology is a lever to make change. And that if you give that lever to two sides, you're not making any change. On that front, we had picked values and organizations that we believed in to try to allow technology to make the change we think it can. Part of the challenge in the current area is there's this perspective that just adding technology to a mix will make things better. I think the last you know, two or three years has made people realize that technology plus humanity with no morals is not really a good combination. <laughs> it, can, it can be bad for sure. <laughs> yeah. Part of the business is serving nonprofits of various sizes mm -hmm. with this list building and mm -hmm. CRM sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Part of it was also in the political campaign mm -hmm. world where I was operating at mm -hmm. the time. Yep. How did you do in those two different spaces and what was your personal preference? The organizing tactics that, that were evolving at the time of online fundraising combined with advocacy, with petitions, with emailing, uh, with peer-to-peer -peer stuff, et cetera, showed their merit during the Obama campaign in 2008 about how effective you could be as a candidate using some of these same tools. We had always kind of suspected that, but I think that was the first real national scale election that people realized, holy cow, this is actually a really, really big deal. So it was a fairly natural move for us. By the time we got up to Salsa, we were about 20% political, about 80% nonprofit uh, as far as uh, revenue and clients. We had about 2,000 clients, give or take, at that point. We were sending out a billion emails, and we were raising hundreds of millions of dollars uh, every quarter. So it was a fairly 
massive operation in, in, in the space. That said, we weren't a huge organization, so we often didn't get some of that same credibility with uh, sponsoring some of the higher-end organizations. But we loved our groups and we loved the work that we were doing. And, so. and yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be proud of there in building an organization that's functioning and handling that kind of pace of things mm-hmm. going out. I mean, just getting email sent mm-hmm. is not as trivial from the inside as people think. <laughs> it is not. Yeah. Like it what, is not. So we'll talk about what some of the challenges were along the way as you as you grew this enterprise. Yeah, I think we were um, always challenged with coming up with new technology while also supporting existing clients, right? One of the my big realizations as I've kind of grown through the years is realizing how best to design a system that can sustain thousands of clients, many of whom aren't the most tech savvy people, while also pushing out features that are, uh, you know, aggressive and innovative enough for some of the newer folks. And that was a big challenge for us because we built up this massive client base. And so moving that massive client base onto new tech became a big issue. Coming out with new user interfaces became a, you know, a, a year process because of the training involved and all the new bits involved. Whereas the coding itself was fairly straightforward. A lot of that moving the clients along was a pain. Did you like re-engineer from scratch at certain points along the way? Like what was your tech stack and how did that change over time? It was all Java based on MySQL uh, at the time. So it was fairly cost effective. We uh, did a couple major overhauls. One, when we went from Democracy in Action to uh, Wired for Change and then our new Salsa interface, which then renamed the company over. Uh, But yeah, that was a full user interface rewrite. However, we made sure that we didn't rewrite the database. So any any guidance to uh, CTOs out there is don't change your database architecture. I left also about six years ago now, give or take. They um, since then I, I think have been figuring out what or who they are technology-wise. So I think uh, they're kind of in an interesting spot right now about how as they figure out how to navigate the current space itself. What would you say your own strengths and weaknesses were as an engineer, engineering leader? Very strong technically, very strong strategically. I think that I ran into trouble how to, how to manage older engineers. Because at the time, I was 26, right? So you're like, you know, 26, 28 years old, and you're bringing on uh, smart but often aggressive senior engineers, because those are the good ones, who would often struggle with authority scenarios. As I've grown, that's been nice because that's gone away because now just by the mere factor of age, you get some bonus points for seniority in a meeting, uh, which I didn't get at the time. In some of those meetings, I would struggle with how to respond to differences of opinions, uh, different organizational structures, etc., who to take advice from, who not to take advice from. All those things definitely were some of the biggest struggles I had. And as an organization, we, we struggled with that. Uh, we went through a phase where we uh, did a venture capital raise. As Salsa, you know, from six or seven years ago or so evolved, we got to a spot where we wanted to grow. And this is a fairly common theme now. At the time, it wasn't. Uh, but the idea about going out and getting some venture capital money to expand your operations. And so we were one of the first kind of nonprofit tech folks to go do that. Um, it didn't end up working out great for us uh, at the end of the How day. How much did you raise? Uh, we did a $5 million raise on uh-huh. a, on a $13.5 million valuation at the point our um uh so what did they get as a sort of a 
share of the company by doing about a third give or take so 30% give or take while they only had 30% control of the stock uh, they had some mildly weaselly language in there about control of the board seats uh, which ended up screwing us in the long run but it did help the company grow so we got got that thing to about 80 or 90 people give or take then our the board bought us out so uh, so we exited from that um, six years ago give or take uh, so sounds like with a healthy amount of money to do what you wanted to do it was fine and yeah, we're, I mean, you know, we we're, were running a tech company for about 10 years at that point. You know, money has never been my focus, uh, nor was April's at the time, like enough to be comfortable. But like, I didn't leave the tech world to go to the nonprofit world for money, I guess would be the best way to phrase it. <laughs> what worked for you as far as internal systems for getting engineers to be productive? Were you like doing agile were you like what what kind of systems did you have in place yeah we had some qa folks on staff at one point we had about 20 engineers I structured them in all different ways. I mean, we had squads of four people grouped into different project areas. We had groups uh, devoted all their time to new product lines. At Salsa, I don't think I ever really quite nailed it down. I think a lot of what we ran into at Salsa was it was a very it got to be a fairly large code base, uh, and this was before a lot of best practices in terms of um, service-oriented architectures had really spun around. So we had one very large code base, and that became fairly daunting to up- upgrade and keep up updating. Eventually, we started to move more to a service-oriented setup, but it's not clear that that actually sped up development. So it's not that I have good answers. I would say, though, that, that the mythical man month is real. The more engineers you put on a project, the less quickly it gets done. When I read that book, which was a yeah. <laughs> hell of a long time ago, it really made an impression on me. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy truth about engineering. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And like here at Fracture now, I mean, we have two engineers and we are pumping out code. I mean, like way faster. Communication than is so much easier. Comms is easier. Decisions are far easier. Yeah. Um, and getting buy-in on any given topic is also a lot easier. And also, as we know, one engineer could be worth 50 other, other mm-hmm. engineers, depending on their capabilities and mm-hmm. quality. So. I, I've even seen like a hundred to one or a thousand to one. And it's true because I've definitely worked with engineers who you just work great together. And you or there's engineers who can actually set you back every hour they put in. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Exactly. You want aggression and you want talent, but by aggression, I don't mean like physical aggression, but the ability to like, say like, Hey, this needs to get done. I'm going to do it. And then once it's done, I'm going to get it deployed. Uh, so get it aggressively into the code base, but smart enough not to break everything along the way. Whereas you can also get engineers that are smart, but cautious. And those are really hard because they know every possible reason why not to do something, but they they have a hard time keeping track of when to do things. How how were you doing as a company in the years from start to raising money? Was it Mm -hmm. a profitable enterprise? Did you have Mm -hmm. enough to to invest when why were you looking for more money if it was profitable we were growing through word of mouth right so we had a small uh, marketing and sales staff two three people etc uh but we were mostly growing through word of mouth and doing pretty good you know doubling every year like uh uh, growing fairly good but without why was that not enough because we saw at the same time get active and luminate and all those other groups uh, quadruple every year. So you get to a spot where you're like, even though you're growing, your competitors are growing two to 10 times as fast as you are. No, well, just more sales and marketing folks to go out there and close the deals. So we get into spots where we'd be like, okay, well, we're clearly the better technology out of these two things. 
However, this other company has sent, has literally flown in seven people. So to pitch Greenpeace, they flew in Bill Peace and seven people to sit around with the Greenpeace board and the, the board from, um, uh, I'm not sure if they bought and bought it by Cabillo yet. I think they had just to sit around the table and you know basically shoot the shit and close a deal at a senior level without ever seeing the product. So we would start getting, losing major deals because we didn't have those seven people to fly to the table and make that, that deal happen. I know the feeling of looking at your competitors and uh, worrying about where they are and making decisions as a result of what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that always works. What's, mm-hmm. What do you think is the the line there that you is sensible to draw between sort of playing your own game, running your own race mm-hmm. and being aware of a market when you're in competition. Yeah. I think the very nature of competition is that you want to beat them. You've gone from like having a small number of clients and you're just have rising expectations, I guess, over time about like who's going to dominate the market versus who's going to well, I, have I a piece of it. Right. I, I don't think it's, Part of me is the dominate the market type of personality, but most of me is really how best can we make this world better through the technology that we use, right? And so one of the challenges we faced was like, we thought of our competitors as inferior technology at a price point far above what we thought nonprofits could afford. We heard rumors and had facts of people spending millions of dollars just to send out an email list, a few million person email list, and put up a few petition sites. That to us was just gut-wrenchingly horrible because that's money that could otherwise have gone to programs by that organization. And it didn't cost that much money to do it. So that old that old factor of like, you know, let's bring it down so people can use that money and resources elsewhere, that was a huge driving force. That must have driven your competitors nuts if you were trying to deliver at a lower price, similar stuff. Like aside from price, yeah. where do you think you were out competing or where do you think maybe you were getting beaten in the market? Yeah. So leading up into the us choosing to get venture capital, we're definitely getting beat on the marketing and sales front. I mean, for every salesperson we put in the field, they put in 20. For every, uh, you, you know, marketing um, push that we had of a few blog posts and a few events, they would have 50 events and code a whole state. Are you thinking mainly of like Blackboard here? or Illuminate, yeah. um, sorry, sorry, Convio and Get yeah. Active yeah. Uh, at the time. Those are the big players in that front. On the political front, there were other folks like the NGP vans, which was starting to evolve and develop, but they weren't quite at the scale yet of the, you know, $100 million operation that, that Convio was when they got bought out. So we realized, though, that, I mean, we were, we were still shooting for small fish, but we were losing all the groups that we wanted to a sales and marketing effort that just clobbered us every time. Um, when, when you saw companies like Get Active and Convio and a number of other ones getting bought up Mm -hmm. did you think about exit in that way did you think about like where was your head in terms of what where i want to take this enterprise yeah no at at that time i think it was very much perhaps a little youthful idealism but also just a real strong desire to take what we saw was the best thing out there and get it as many hands uh, many progressive hands as possible to move the needle right to to make sure that there was uh, you know 10,000 organizations that could effectively organize to make the change they wanted happen. So we weren't thinking about exit at all at that time. My understanding of business has changed 
fairly dramatically in the last six or seven years or so. That wasn't on our mind at the time, but it was all the speed. So we're like, hey, well, we need to go get some money so we can hire some sales and marketing folks, which was our whole pitch. Like we had a lot of engineers. We were fine on the product front. I mean, I always wanted to move faster, but I think by and large, we were fine. But the marketing and sales, we were so far behind. So the whole idea was to raise some money because the thing about, especially nonprofit sales, it takes 18 months to close a deal. And so that means that you have to pay somebody effectively 18 months ahead of time in order to get that deal closed. That costs money, but it means your balance sheet has got to be big enough to sustain them. How would you characterize the company culture that you two created? Oh, that was great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. And I can't claim too much credit for that. Got to admit, it was an extremely energetic, passionate group of people uh, that all of us were dedicated to making technology work to make change happen. You know, we had big posters on the wall, change, make change happen. Let's, let's do this. So that culture was, was extremely exciting to be in and, you know, very innovative and, and energetic. As you mentioned, a bit competitive at the time, but um, we got through some nice wins. So in 2008, 2012, um, had, a, you know, some pretty big Democratic wins. And we were running at the time a few hundred candidates. Uh, so it was fun to see those kind of candidates surge up and swell up. It was a exciting, uh, energetic, a lot of fun to be around, but at the core was a really strong social change mission. Did that help with hiring or hurt with hiring or how did that affect who you would bring in? I suppose it helped. I think hiring is an unusual thing, especially in the progressive movement, because we would all like to present the perfect hiring profile as a company. But by and large, people tend to hire people they know. And so we got into kind of this progressive bubble where everyone was just kind of cycling through. They worked at this company, then this company, this company, this company. I think we had a fairly hard time at Salsa, but I think the industry as a whole about pulling people in from outside, from other industries. So I think that we lived in the same bubble as many progressive orgs did uh, regarding that. You mentioned this capital raise, and obviously that mm-hmm. was an inflection point mm-hmm. for you guys. Yep. Talk about like the process of raising that money a little bit. For because mm-hmm. I have other political entrepreneurs that I've had on the show who haven't made it to that stage yet. Right. right? So yeah. talk about like what it took to do that, mm-hmm. what and then some of the lessons learned, perhaps. Yeah. So at the time we were we were going pretty good. So we had about four or five million dollars in revenue. So we were a sustainable business. We were profitable at that point. The one thing about being profitable, it's weird because once you turn profitable, how people evaluate your company is very different. If you think about like Uber or Lyft or some of these other companies, they've been losing hundreds of millions of dollars every year for years. What it means though is that you can sell the vision. When you're a profitable company, though, you have to sell the facts. And that that becomes a little different. So we were we had kind of two struggling bits. Having never raised money before, uh, we had to prove to people that um, what we were doing could be massively profitable. And it just wasn't now because of um, reasons outside of our growth trajectory. What, what would you say you were making on $5 million? Not much more than that. So I'd, I'd say that on, on that $5 million, we're probably only profiting every year a few hundred K. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we were hiring up to, to you know, you were, you were spending what you were bringing yeah, in more or less. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, no, we weren't, we weren't we were like returning that to shareholders. Um, the mm-hmm. um, uh, and then um, getting over the nonprofit thing was a, was a, a struggle. Is this, an, is this a market where I can make money as an investor, as a VC that's yeah. really bottom line oriented? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So despite the fact that we had a very, you know, at that point, a very well-run business that was cranking along, growing, doing just fine, didn't need the money, everyone says, oh, you're in a perfect situation for raising money. It's like, well, yeah, not really. Actually, you're not. And that that's kind of an unusual, like, twist. It's because the, again, you're selling reality. And it, it, like, you've actually got real hard numbers. And, and your reality was, I'm a $5 million company, not a billion dollar company. Mm-hmm. And, and not everybody could see how... You're going to go yeah. from one to the other. Right. Yeah, exactly. How does that map through? Did you talk to a lot of firms? About, about 30, about I'd say. About 30. Yeah, we pitched yeah. about 30 firms. Wow. Uh, we got a couple soft bites and went back for a couple of things. Ended up only getting a couple term sheets. Uh, and one of them got yanked when one of the other board members realized that we were progressive. I mean, did you find yeah. people not understanding that progressive line like why not sell to anybody why not sell to the nra or yeah yeah. we we got that that was typically pushed aside by the like if you think of this as a target market in our target market we're well known we know the technology we know the players know the people like so the target market is not just the nonprofit world it's the progressive nonprofit world. Uh, we had some ideas of expanding beyond that. That that was definitely a hard sell. Looking back, I know why now because the nonprofit industry does not generate large publicly traded companies very frequently. There's kind of a growth cap for whatever reason, but you just don't see a lot of hundred million dollar operations coming out of the nonprofit world. So uh, venture capitalists are pattern matchers. So like that, that's all they really do. So in this case, there wasn't a really good model or pattern for us. To but go someone through. did bite and give you some money. Yep. So yep. Well, who was it? And uh, what? Sir Ed- Edison Ventures was the name of the firm. They, um, took advantage of some youthful entrepreneurs and played out a playbook that in their case was very well played out. What do you mean by that? Sure. They had a cadre of lawyers and uh, financiers and some of their limited partners and other folks who would help coordinate the acquisition of small to mid-sized companies and then effectively take them over. So they played out that playbook. We were unaware of how it was playing when it played out how long did this playbook take from 18 months 18 months from closing Mm -hmm. a deal with them Mm -hmm. to to getting bought out by them uh, to be fully bought out by them bought out without your own Uh, without our agreement yeah Mm -hmm. so they Mm -hmm. they forcibly pushed you out yeah in Mm -hmm. exchange for some money based on an arrangement yeah they they tried to not have us walk away with anything but um that was um uh proved untenable i guess would be the best way did you have to go to court about it uh, no, I mean, in a lot of those situations, which is more generic than that, is if one player at a poker table has a stack of chips that's 100 million deep, and you have a stack of chips that's like 10,000 deep, it really doesn't matter what the courts say at that point, because they'll just keep you going into court until they win one. They just have to win one, just like just like poker. When, the, when you look back at that, mm-hmm. is this a pattern with Edison Ventures? Is with this, Edison it is, yeah. yeah. And with probably some other venture capitalists, I actually don't believe that all VCs are bad. I do think I I'm know. Sure they're not. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think I know a lot more about what types of things to look at. Well, if you were talking to a young entrepreneur with a five million dollar company right now, and they were considering growth capital to bring in sales or whatever they're thinking about, yeah, what would you advise them? Board matters more than anything else. Keep control. 
control is a weird word because yeah. we thought we had control, yeah. right? Uh, because we thought by owning most of the shares and having what we thought were three three out of five board seats, but it turns out that one of the board seats um, flipped on us. How right? did that happen? Uh, just um, there it, was it, it someone you appointed flipped on you? Or? Uh, it was a joint appointee. So two, they got two, we got two, and then there was a fifth that was a, a, a agreed upon by both parties entity. How did you pick that person? There was a, a list of names that we all collaborated on. But again, this is where we were, we did not appreciate the scope of what was happening. You didn't realize that this was the, the fulcrum yes. of, of control yes. and that, and you weren't careful enough about who that person was? Not careful enough, not careful about enough about the incentives driving those people. More importantly, actually, was the lawyer. So the law firm was um, uh, somebody who does lots and lots of venture capital deals all the time, right? We were unprepared to realize that the lawyer that we had been spending $500 an hour for... Your lawyer. Our lawyer. Yeah. Who helped write up the, the deal, helped do all the legal stuff uh, with this ended up flipping on us not not like your lawyer the fifth board member no he wasn't but but the way they wrote up the contract allowed that flip of the fifth fifth board member in one vote to cause a cascade of other scenarios to to play out does that mean you feel like you weren't well represented in the agreement to agree to something that that could happen yeah so you know one of our lines of argument about some other lawyers that we had talked to was that like uh, our lawyer had been acting in bad faith however uh we were told that again that's a court battle that'll drag out for 18 months and the bar to clear for good faith for a lawyer turns out to be shockingly low uh so uh (laughs) he could have always said that he was acting in what he thought was the best interest of the company which was not the founders, right? So, so there's a, you know, there's some nice little legalese there that like your personal lawyer versus the company lawyer versus, you know, that is, so anyway, point being is that because the company was paying for him, he could make a justifiable argument that he was doing what was in best interest of the company, uh, which does was to go to the founders. Does that mean that the founders should have their own lawyer in a situation? hundred like? percent. Yeah. 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 So the, so, uh, get your own lawyer as well, have a company lawyer and have whoever lawyers or whoever else ringing to the table or, Keep the deal to one page. And this is like the, this is the. the how long was, how large, how many pages was your deal? I don't know, 80, 90 pages, give or take. Um, Some kind of boilerplate that they've. All kinds of, well, yeah. that's the thing. you can't tell what's boilerplate and what turns out to be the key um, sentence. Ours was a weird word like provided however. The word is provided however. And so as a non-lawyer, I'm like looking through this and it's like, I'm not going to catch provided however and the flip meaning of that. In a was lot there of any discussion between you and your lawyer previous to signing the deal that highlighted that? heart that was dangerous to you no no and and this is why what we realized later was that lawyer the next 50 deals he's gonna do not gonna be with us they're gonna be with that same venture capital firm or other ones like them so their bread is buttered by the next upcoming deals it's a little hair raising to me oh yeah yeah Yeah, it is (laughs) what what's the moment where you and your Mm -hmm. wife right Mm -hmm. find out that this is happening How board does- meeting good old-fashioned board meeting yep. vote vote comes up we're like i'm sorry you know we're like we don't want to vote on that and they're like too bad vote goes knocks me out of ceo which then made me lose my board seat which then led to a whole right so wait they have a vote on whether you're going to be demoted to cto from ceo right right and you were opposed to that uh that's correct yeah i was yeah. opposed to it um the, what was um, their rationale uh that i was techie 
And and who should be CEO? The one they put up was the other board member from the venture capital firm. So right. I mean, it was it was pretty it was pretty clear within the span of about two minutes what was happening. Uh, but did you did you did right. you did you sweat? I mean, like I'm I'm trying. We to, were angry. Yeah. I mean, we we were certainly angry. Yeah. Uh, like like at that point, um, before we were escorted out, which is always always fun. Oh my goodness. Uh, that, uh, you were actually escorted out of your own company. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. That so was... you were fired as part of this meeting. Well, oh. um, I uh, did not take the CTO role, uh, and uh, we elected to to basically contest it at that point. So oh. um, yeah, that. Um, I always try to think about something from someone else's point of view, sure. and maybe the point of view of the firm is, I'm just imagining here, like they had a better CEO, and they thought the company would prosper more mm -hmm. under different leadership mm -hmm. and they were doing what was in their mind in mm -hmm. best interest of the company is is, uh, it, is there any sense that that if, could be true um if that were the case they would have let us keep our board seats right so so there would have been a and they went to so you then, actually i don't understand how you lost your board seats i thought you just were three to two being outvoted provided however which Remember is, that clause which I just mentioned yeah. that there was a provided however clause which was uh, our if, lawyer told us that locked in one of our our choices as C, uh, CEO mm -hmm. so but it was actually the inverse that if we lost the CEO role we lose the board seat too did it seem like that was if you step down that you lose your board seat so this is trying to keep you around no it was completely intentionally wishy-washy uh -huh. and our lawyer had completely intentionally told us that this this is how this plays out when that popped up in the the board meeting they're effectively like okay sue us and this is what it gets down to so we talked to a lot of lawyers about this and, and it sounds like they've done that meeting before oh yeah they've 100%. seen that reaction from 100%. entrepreneurs before 100 percent. they're sharks yeah, like like, the, like easy. I mean, yeah, I have no problem calling them sharks. It, it's it was intriguing me and the the engineer in my in, in my blood was intrigued about how they played it out. The game theory, the, of the, it all. like oh, I was like yeah, I was like wow, okay. So this cascades to this, this cascades to this, this goes on revalue of the company, rebuy shares. How long like, do you think they were planning that? It's a playbook they've been they've been developing. So for they planned years. it from the from the deal point from the meeting. Think, do you think they would have invested? money in you without that no trigger so that was like no that was like something you were you were having to accept because of because of going to 30 firms and only finding a couple that would yeah would yeah and, i mean be in the game with you yeah and i mean they said all the right all, all the right things right like, it seemed like, like they were on the up and sure up. yeah sure seemed like things are on the on the up and up even some of the folks we talked to uh for reference checks and everything else on that like you know checked out flying colors like uh we were unaware of the scope of their network. They literally had hundreds of hundreds of people like in their historical network uh, who they put in you know, positions as president, as different people at these organizations. So they would only put us in touch with people within their network about these companies. So, yeah. So how did your relationship with Salsa mm -hmm. wind down? Like... Yeah, I mean, over, over the course of a year or so after that, they just effectively bought our silence. So they locked us up under a non-compete, non-don't-say-anything non, you know, don't say anything type of thing for a few years. Which in actually exchange we for... In exchange for money. In exchange for buying out the rest of our shares. Yeah. It was like, maybe send your kids to college, but not buy a yacht. Like that that kind of range of, of money out of that. 
fairly frustrating. Pennies on the dollar, what it was worth. Uh, the whole, but we were happy to not talk about it because we both kind of just wanted to move on from from that. So you never worked there again after that meeting? Or no. Yeah. No. Never. Never did again. Mm-mm. Having started and worked for many years on a company in a similar space, I would have found that to be quite wrenching emotionally. It was for you. Oh yeah, it was yeah. for me. It was for April too. You know, we had a few kids, and she she actually now lives in Mexico um, down there. I've, April. April now yeah. is now in Mexico. Yep. Uh, I started up a new company because I I can't sit idle. Of course, it was gut wrenching. Of course, it was toxically horrible, and I still think about it. But you know, not much more to do than get off the mat. Right? Yeah. To what degree have you followed the <laughs> the trajectory of your old company mm-hmm. in the years since? Fracture is very similar in terms of kind of a bootstrapped startup company uh, tackling issues in the nonprofit progressive political space. So in that sense, it's it's actually quite similar, and uh, uh, as far as the last one is. So so you almost necessarily have to track the old company. Um, not necessarily. I mean, I could I could go hop to you know I don't know doing uh, something with uh, neural nets and artificial intelligence in Silicon Valley. No, I mean but- by having chosen this company, yeah. you're in the same space with your old company. There is a very useful thing about knowing people when you're setting up a company. Yeah, no um, and knowing the market. Knowing the market, yeah. knowing the phrasing, knowing the terminology, everything. Yeah. When you're looking for those first five clients for your new company, you're going to mine the deck of your, uh, you know, the Rolodex of your existing folks. Is April in Fracture? She is not. Nope. She's um, doing a, a, a tequila bar down in Mexico now. She's doing a whole bunch of other things okay. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have Children, in we got we got a couple of kids. Yep, yeah. um, uh, we split a couple of years ago, but uh, we've got two kids, Finn and Sylvie, uh, who are seven and five now and gorgeous. And so we still keep in touch. For sure. So what's the what year do you found Fracture, and what's the founding story there? Uh, it was literally within four months of the whole salsa thing finally going down. Um, oh, you really got got on the horse quickly. Oh, I was on the horse. It, it, it's what I know how to do. You know, like like this is how I keep my days occupied. Uh, so it was around 2013, give or take. Spent a couple of years not not quite sure what it was. The themes around it were like, hey, lots of technologies out there. Don't want to do another CRM, so let's not do another CRM. You had a non-compete uh, on a CRM. I did have a non-compete yeah, on the yeah, CRM. I yeah. think um, I also had no intention of doing it, largely because I thought that space is full of a lot of uh, organizations right now. It's a fairly hyper-competitive space and um, a lot of mature organizations. And so a new startup in a very mature environment it's fairly hard to get going without some pretty hefty funding, which I still had a kind of bad taste about. So, yeah. so uh, you, this one's yeah. bootstrapped, mm-hmm. meaning, did you put your own money in, mm-hmm. and yep. did you hire up a few people? What, what was the staffing at the beginning? Yeah, so the first two, I'd say two to three years or so, it was like one or two people periodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was building out the tech, you. yeah, at that point I was building out the tech, mm-hmm. uh, figuring out the clients. Uh, I knew it was going to be something in the kind of um, reporting uh, data aggregation world. Wasn't quite sure what yet. Um, clued into bots and automation before bots were cool. That kind of drove a lot of our kind of the marketing side of things. But eventually started to start picking up uh, some clients. Got a nice big contract with PBS uh, to do a lot of their integration work uh, that really kind of boosted us up to another uh, higher to give or take. A lot of private companies have sort of a business intelligence suite that they use to pull together different data silos and 
and then analyze it. Yeah, the um, right. So the the bullet on fracture. What is fracture? Um, yeah. So um, fracture comes from a scenario where we realized there were more technologies than people. We used to be able to get by with email and online fundraising and a CRM. You're good to go. But now with online ads, with social media, with all these different means of communicating, there's no way that humans alone are able to, to accomplish what we need to uh, in terms of organizing, fundraising, do all the work that we need to do. An enterprise needs to use so many different pieces of software. There needs to be a way to tie them together on a data side. That's part of it. Just yeah. just the fact of using a lot of technologies means you've got to have You're creating more separate bodies. data. Y- yeah. yeah. And the way Fracture elects to solve it is we do an army of bots that helps you interact with technologies oh. and a data warehouse. So, so does that mean it automates the technology? Automation. Yep. yep. That, that's the big word for us. Um, automation and warehousing is the other one. So, the, okay. so, the so there's a storage side and then there's an there's a kind of interface side. Uh, in e- the way we... ETL is the word in the industry, extract, transform, load, but it's basically getting data in and out of another system. Uh The warehouse is, yeah, like you say, the data store. It's a technique which has been pretty common in Fortune 500 for a while, but it's fairly uncommon in the nonprofit political space. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the idea is having one warehouse, one kind of hub uh, where you pull uh, information in from all the sources, like you mentioned, which is great for business intelligence. It's great for uh, just attribution, knowing where dollars are coming from like all there's all kind of good means for that data cleaning etc we also do a lot of pushing back so think pushing back custom facebook targeting segments based on direct mail data right or pushing up um you know information from uh, email list history to get other auth information into twitter for other targeting bits Uh, so it's a combination of targeting data intelligence but heavy on the etl side of things how has fracture done we spent the first two or three years in the wilderness, not going to lie. Once we started to get a few contracts, especially in the last year, we've been doing great. So we've doubled in size since last year. So we're from three people to six people full-time now. Uh, we have another couple of people on outside work. We're working with about 150 different organizations now, a lot of agencies. So one of our big things... Um, a fracture is helping large operations and organizations think AARP, think um, the One Campaign, think uh, Amnesty International, as well as agencies, groups like um, CCAH or Mothership or um, uh, MNR, or uh, uh, all these are groups that we help aggregate data for so that they can then report on it across all their groups. Would a presidential campaign be a good mm-hmm. fit? I mean, we is have, that like what Narwhal was supposed to do or some, you know, for oh, Obama yeah. or? Oh yeah. There's been, there, you know, there's been, because it's always been a problem at the national level, you get a few people doing some things. So like whether it be the Narwhal or Civis or a few other folks at the national level, at the 60 K a year clip, you've got some players who are doing this stuff, but similar to democracy in action, those are inaccessible to anyone without a $100,000 technology budget. So does Fracture work for a smaller nonprofit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a little larger than like democracy in action, which we went down to like a hundred a month at DIA, but like our low price now is around 500 a month, give or take. We're still not in the very tiny groups. Um, For those we recommend like all in one systems and just, just go do everything in one system. That's fine. But for the mid-sized to large groups, kind of our, our our key point here, we're uh, cost effective for them beyond having to hire a database administrator beyond having to hire all these folks up. What would an ideal client be for Mm -hmm. Fracture? Like, what would they be using and what would they 
be gaining by using your your, soft, your sure. system. Think about a mid-sized nonprofit organization, 10 to $50 million in revenue that has been using either one of the eCRMs, so like the um, the Every Actions, the, the Blue State Digitals, the, uh, you know, the Salsas, et cetera, plus using maybe an outside CRM like a Salesforce or a Razor's Edge, uh, plus using social media, so Facebook, Twitter, uh, online ads, Google ads, Facebook ads, et cetera, using a reporting suite, something like a Tableau or uh, Google Data Studio, using Hustle or Relay for text messaging management, <laughs> mobile commons for blast text messaging. Yeah. I've just described a fairly common operation for a mid-sized which is, organization. Which is, you know, if you're CTO for that or something, mm -hmm. it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And then you're trying to say like, okay, what's my value for doing a care to list buy or doing a change.org list buy? How much value am I deriving out of that? And you've got to try and define that across the eight technologies I just listed, plus, you know, whatever the technologies might be legacy too. So if they have yours, what can they then do? So at that point, you can start saying reporting from across all of your different platforms so that you can actually say, oh, hey, this dollar came from our Facebook ad that we put out two weeks ago, or this dollar came from our email that went out yesterday or from direct mail. You'd be surprised how many organizations these days don't know that, especially at agencies who have to deal with 50 of those organizations were huge because that used to be manual. It used to be somebody logging into AxBlue, downloading a CSV so, spreadsheet. So are agencies then driving sales for you because it's helping them? Uh, absolutely, yep. Yeah. So, so I would say that most of our business right now comes through our agencies or, or directly with the agencies themselves because they're a great explainer of what we do, but they also are at the, the pointy end of the stick where it's really a pain in the ass to deal with all this manual labor. Uh, and, and so agencies, I think, are a great part of the infrastructure and have done a great job of... So what are some agencies you work with? Sure. So um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit on the political side, some mothership strategies. Uh, so uh, Online fundraising firm. Uh, online fundraising firm, email uh, fundraising. Yeah. They also do online ads, etc. They work with about 50 candidates right now, groups like N Citizens United and a few other uh, very high profile groups. And they do a lot of the coordination of online ads, email, online fundraising, uh, attribution, uh, you know, all the source coding that's there and involved. It gets fairly wonky and geeky about how to manage all that. Every day we'll run 20,000 jobs for them, moving data in and amongst these systems. So say, um, you know, ECU gets uh, 10,000 people who sign up on one of their pledge forms, right? We'll route that data within the hour back into their warehouse, attribute those names to an email that might have gone out, track any giving that they've done historically so that the the, the staff at, at Mothership just sees how that list performed. They don't have to know how all the stuff works in the background. They just say, this message went out, this is how much money it raised, which in the modern era is not as easy as you might think. Uh, so that that's uh, an agency or nonprofits as well. I assume you have to be pretty careful not to move the wrong data into the wrong place or something, right? I mean, some, I mean, the nice thing about a sandbox as a warehouse is that we are not an origin point for any data set. Mm -hmm. So if something gets out of sync, we just clobber the data and reload it. But uh, you're pushing stuff back into people's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll often push targeting yeah. segments back in, yeah. uh, and if but that's a column, and if it's messed up, you can remove it. Yeah, or you just yeah. just remove it or kind of. you know delete the group or whatever. So I think it's far more forgiving than Salsa or DIA was in that we don't have public facing forms where if they go down, people lose money. So in that sense, from a support perspective, it's far more forgiving. That said, it's it, the problems are a lot different. Like how do you run forty thousand jobs a day against one hundred forty five external 
external systems, any one of which could have just an outage of that particular day. How do you restart those jobs? How do you figure out how to manage? We do a billion records a day right now. We move between these Sounds systems. like it's kind of up your alley in as an engineering challenge oh, as much so as fun. anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also new. And I think it's one of those like having run a CRM company and an advocacy company and fundraising company before, this is a completely new set of problems. This is how do we get data out of systems that may not have good APIs or might not have access to you know certain fields? How do we interact with all these things? So it's every day, it's kind of a new engineering puzzle about how we solve some of these challenging bits. Who's competition for you? Like if... If someone mm. wants to solve the same problem in a different yeah. way, what are they doing? Usually on-staff engineers or on-staff DBAs. Mm. So if a large organization has these problems, which they do, mm-hmm. they'll often hire up a DBA who will deploy an Amazon database. They'll set some data structures up. They'll write some scripts to hit against APIs that they know. Uh, and then they'll maintain that. As you know, code debt's kind of a pain. But once you write code, you have to maintain it. And the maintenance far exceeds the actual cost of originally building it. So that's typically who we'll compete with. And what I think you're saying is that's short-sighted. It's going to cost them more in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. yeah again, it's it's cost-feature ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, we operate at a significantly cheaper cost than doing that on staff. At Fracture, nothing we're doing is rocket science. Automation, by its very definition, isn't rocket science. All it's doing is automating something that had previously been done by humans. When we describe to people the value of Fracture, Some people get it right off the bat because they're like, oh, my God, you're going to save me thousands of hours in the coming years. Some people are like, well, we already have somebody who does that. Why is that valuable to us? You're like, oh, they they could be doing something else. And like, so that's why it's often a challenge discussing fracture with some folks. There's a a new initiative I don't know a lot about Mm -hmm. with Democrats that's involving a data exchange of some sort. Mm -hmm. Are you involved in that? Are you aware of that? What do you know about it? Yeah, I know a little. So I think uh, Howard Dean and the Democratic Data Exchange, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that they're trying to, I hope, reset the Democratic data environment right now. I think that, that we're in kind of a monopolistic environment where it's fairly difficult for entities like Fracture to work with a Democratic Party. So... For example, Fracture is a good example. We can't right now go directly to the DNC and say, hey, we want to move data in and out of the, you know, the voter database to all these candidates that we're working with. They're like, okay, we'll contact your agency, have them contact the campaign. They contact the state parties. The state parties then contact us to have us allow access to this. And only then can we even bother trying or playing with things. So my read on the DDX is their attempts to kind of reset how this whole data is uh, world is set up. Um, Sounds like you think that's a good thing. I 100% do. Yeah. I think I, I think it's a very, very good thing. Mm-hmm. I think we have been stagnant in the Democratic Party for 15 years, uh, that the same technologies we're using now, if you look at the budget line items of people, the same technologies they're paying for now is what they were paying for 15 years ago. And it's, it, you know, has minor tweaks and minor enhancements, but none of the data models have changed. None of the ways of interacting have changed. The Republicans now, you can have the NRA go to a door and door knock and have that information immediately available to the Trump campaign synced through kind of a, a national data set that they have. So I think the DDX is an attempt by the Democrats to modernize their data infrastructure as well as incorporate data from 
friendly entities, C3, C4s, PACs, et cetera, in a way that it can't do right now. Is that something that you could be involved in? Can they use your technology for that? They could, yeah. I mean, I think um, they're still kind of getting their feet under them right now. But that said, I think it's a fantastic idea. We'd absolutely like to be involved on the fracture front. I think we're trying to figure out which direction to go right now uh, in terms of setting that up. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a third tech, it's a third legal, and it's a third political. Because you got to get folks on board on the political side. You got to make sure that the legal structure is structured as well. So I think I'm hopeful, but I recognize that the legal and political troubles may outweigh some of the tech bits. How do you see your old market, the salsa world, in this current day and age, all these years later? I got eight letters for you. Stagnant. Yeah. Nothing has changed. I look at some of the newer platforms out there, and they're adding things like origin source codes for people that were standard in 2006. And you're like, are you kidding? So like, I think that I've, I've not seen a feature come out in um, the CRM, eCRM world in, in like the last 10 years. Like, and that's been extremely frustrating. I've got fractures, so I'm not like spending too much time sweating on it. But we interact with all of them now. I've got plugins and you know connections to almost all the major CRMs, and there's nothing new on there. Well, if you were still running a yeah. company in the nonprofit e- yeah. or campaign eCRM world, what kind of innovations would you be making? Drop it to free. Drop to free? What does that Drop mean? Drop to free. Make it free. Like there's no reason that fairly commoditized simple tool sets that are like CRMs and query tools and you mean you would build a free, free a free tool or you would or offer take, it free if you were every take, action or something yeah if, if you, you, you drop me in CEO at any, any given CRM you name it right now I'd make it free and, and, then, and then how would you replace the revenue that you need to pay your engineers? Like right now, the value of tech has been dropping like a stone because it is so much easier to do things at much cheaper cost. Think about Oracle. I mean, Oracle itself is not hurting that much because of all these services contracts that they have. But the actual cost of a database these days is, you know, it's cheap to free. Like you you can host uh, Amazon Aurora database or a Google BigQuery database for right now for literally pennies on the thousands of dollars that it used to cost. So there's a massive drop in the actual price of especially legacy technologies. And I categorize common CRM features, 15 to 20 year old features as legacy features. The price of that has just got to go down. Uh, and, and so does that tempt you to go back and do it again? Here it, you are with one piece of it. Why not go back and well, it, and make that free thing? I, again, I'm somewhat dubious about that being the, the, the price that will support a company. It, Again, it's a commodity, right? So just just like sending out email used to be extremely hard and extremely expensive. You still pay for an emailer, though. You sure do, but the cost is, again, pennies on the dollar. Whereas if you take an ECRM or an every action cost today and try to transition it back to the same list size 15 years ago, it's actually more expensive now. So the, the current players are more expensive than Salsa was in the day, than Get Active was in the day. They're, they're actually increase the cost. Decrease in features, increase in cost is the mechanic we're under right now. So of course it's frustrating. Weirdly, at Fracture, we benefit from that because uh, we're the only ones who can then integrate with those technologies. So this proliferation of CRMs and technologies is good for Fracture. 
But I, I personally would not want to jump back into a commoditized market where the feature sets should, and the price should be dropping. That doesn't seem like the a, a good market to get into. But I do think somebody will come along with something that is a much more cost-effective option uh, than a lot of the stuff out there right now. Why do you think it is that all of the companies are charging a lot more than zero? So dovetailing from earlier when we raised the fund at Salsa, yeah. we did it to do marketing and sales yeah. because we know that in the nonprofit world, what sells is marketing and sales, not features and price. That's an absolute fact that's playing itself out right now in the Sierra markets fairly strongly. Almost nobody right now in the Sierra markets, when they go into a pitch, actually pitches the product. They're pitching other groups that are using it. They're pitching legacy things. That's not like they're actually going through a spreadsheet list of checklists of options. RFPs these days, people don't send out RFPs anymore. Well, what do you think has changed then? Because if you were at DIA, Salsa, mm-hmm. Wire for Change, mm-hmm. not putting out money on marketing, and I know we weren't, what has changed that you think that marketing is holding sway when it didn't used to? I don't think that it's changed. I think, to your point, not very many people were doing marketing at the time. That said, though, BlackBot at the time was doing exactly the same thing, right? So they were in the direct mail CRM space as well. We were in our own kind of little pocket space in the ERM, ECRM world, but this is playing out nationally with, with BlackBot. So what does that say to you? Like, if you are advising some young entrepreneurs who are mm-hmm. new in the political or nonprofit space with some kind of technology product, mm-hmm. how much would you advise them to be investing in marketing and sales mm-hmm. versus product? Um, that's a good question. I've got, I've got fracture now, right? So yeah. like, so we're about a third, a third, a third. So a third support, a third marketing sales, a third, yeah. um, uh, product. I'd say try to keep that. It's a fairly good line of line of thinking on that. If you're a young entrepreneur right now, don't try and tackle a mature market, right? Go after something, uh, you know, slightly Well, most of these people different. that are starting up are tackling a piece. They see a weakness in particular feature or mm-hmm. a problem that's not well solved. And mm-hmm. they're kind of, it's a point solution to that. Mm-hmm. And that is then giving them a beachhead to go further. But, you know, I don't know <laughs> what the future is going to hold for some of these Right now, the cycle is, is you've got BlackBot and Salesforce going head-to-head on the mid-to-large-size CRM world. In the political world, you've got NGP Van trying to expand out into the nonprofit world a bit. Those are the big players. In fact, so like an NGP Van is almost monopoly status in the democratic political world. Salesforce and BlackBot are fairly going head-to-head. But it, right now, it is the clash of giants moment. And these giants are raising money, tens of millions of dollars, to acquire other folks. BlackBot is sweeping up companies. You know, Salesforce is sweeping up companies. NGP Van, same thing. So you're in this kind of interesting spot right now where it is the clash of, of titans. I actually think that some of these titans, when they were first started had very new innovative technology that was quite good. Now, almost all of them, BlackBot, NGB Van, even Salesforce, their technology is aging. It's not aging very, very well. So I think that just like any kind of monopoly scenario, there will eventually be, it'll work itself out, but it's going to be five or 10 years. I'm hopeful that things like the DDX or some other entities that have fulcrums of their own can make changes that allow people youthful entrepreneurs, startup companies, and get in to a lot of these different connections that we need to. What do you think the characteristics are of a strong political entrepreneur? 
passion is, is the, the first one. Some amount of naivety. This kind of, I guess, third time around for me, the knowledge is useful, but it sure does not make me want to play in certain fields. I've interviewed people who are passionate about their startup and they're not aware of some competitors. Like they're just, they don't even know they exist. Yeah. And it's hard to be scared in that, <laughs> in that situation, right? Yeah. And yeah. maybe that's beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, a little naivete, a little, you know, a lot of passion and clients. I think one of the things that I've seen about startups is you're like, you got to get clients. Like, like, Yes, there might be some types of organizations that can pull off a half mission, half vendor scenario. That's not as easy as a lot of people might think. I think um, Change.org and Care2 tried to develop that, but quickly moved to the vendor side of things. So if you're going to be in the software entrepreneurship world, you've got to have clients. And that's one of the hardest things I see people talk through. I'm like two or three years ago, like messenger bots, like Facebook messenger bot. And I talked to like five people who were starting up these, these messenger things. I was like, great. Who's your client? They're like, oh, well, all, the, all these big nonprofits are our clients. Like, great. No problem. So what are they going to pay you? They're like, oh, well, they're going to pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is like, no, they're not. I might miss out on some of those novel ideas. I think I've got some novel ideas of our own that ha- that I see going after budget line items that are big enough to sustain a company. If I were a young entrepreneur, I would go through the line items of what a nonprofit is spending. Figure out where you can get paid from. Yeah, figure yeah. out where you can get paid from. Yeah. Because if you're not a line item there, and you're a new price, a new cost for them. Yeah, oh. yeah. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a harder sell, by far. It, but yeah, by far harder sell. Yeah. So you have to be really freaking good to add a new line item. What's the question? I didn't ask you that I yeah. should have. Uh-huh. I appreciate all the talk about like the CRM space as it, ex- as it exists now, but I do see the CRMs as merely representative of a future way we interact with technology, right? So, so Fracture's whole theme is about what it's going to look like in five or 10 years, not what it looks like now. We're just adding more and more technologies. People have to be okay with interacting with hundreds of technologies, right? Hundreds. And how do you do that? And trying to think through that, I don't see a place in five or 10 years where one technology rules them all. I think that's always the kind of vision in each of these worlds is like, you're only within our platform, more or that's less. That's right. right. We are the database of record, right? right. We hear that all the time. Right. And, that, and, and sure, that, we'll integrate with a few things, but it comes together with us. Yeah. Whereas you're kind of the database of record in a certain way. We, we think of more of a, uh, of a sandbox where you can play with, with all the different things that are going on. One of the th- questions I had for you is why fracture? Because it seems like the goal is more glue than coming <laughs> apart. Why did you name it that? I mean, a lot of reasons. Went through a couple naming things. Branding and naming is always, I love it. I love the experiment of it. Um, but it did come from the, the fractured environment we currently live in. So there, there are a couple it's like, like heal the fracture. Y- yeah, <laughs> but th- th- there's also kind of a, a blow it up aspect to the whole thing, right? Like kind of an innovator's kind of a dilemma of like, well, I want to blow up everything that we're trying to fix. So that came out, um, got the domain name. So there's a couple other, you know, subtle things. Um, uh, and it, so it was interesting enough to be able to build a brand around. Uh, but like Salsa, I mean, Democracy in Action was fairly illustrative. But like but Salsa, like coming off the heels of that, it was so exciting to be able to build a brand around something that nobody expected, uh, you know, that name itself. It occurs to me that a firm like Blackboard, if you're, if you're adding a huge amount of value mm-hmm. to Blackboard clients, mm-hmm. let's say, that a firm like Blackboard might be interested in having Fracture only work with them and mm-hmm. might come to you and say, join our behemoth. 
Yeah. Right. What do you think about the future of fracture in, in those terms? Like, sure. Where do you want to take it? Yeah, I think um, fracture is going to start in the nonprofit political world, be there for the next couple of years. We'll probably go to another couple of verticals, too. So sports is interesting. There's a couple other verticals out there. Not working with folks on the right of the aisle. I still strongly believe in the lever effect. However, I've also seen groups like Salesforce make dramatic change as larger companies in ways that we could have only dreamed that we could have done at smaller groups. So I think it's striking that balance of like how many verticals we get into as Fracture grows. We're still fairly early in Fracture's history. And having had conversations, honest conversations with BlackBot and uh, you know a few other firms, they still don't get it. It's the same thing that you mentioned before. They're in this world of like, we are the database of record. We're going to add in a couple other things here and there, but by and large, that's our, our main money thing. This this other worldview doesn't really exist to us, so your value is minor for some of those integration bits. I think that's going to change. I think that's going to slowly change, and I think that the CRMs are going to be, despite the, their kicking and screaming, are going to be kind of deprioritized in the same way that Trump almost deprioritized email by being so good at Twitter and Facebook. Like suddenly you're like, well, email's not going away anytime soon. But now people realize if you're a modern operation, you have to really be up on your Twitter and Facebook arena. Just as we get to the end of the interview, I'm just kind of curious what you see in the politics of today. Oh, I'd like to see a woman president. Always have. I also think that politics is in the midst of a fairly dramatic change and similar to like the invention of the steam engine we don't know what's going to happen at the end of this like what the values are going to be how this is going to change things maybe it leads to direct democracy i do believe that in the mid to long run 20 to 30 years out representative democracies you know are the days are numbered uh, like at this point i love it as it is i hope that what comes next is better but at the end of the day with the rise of extremism particularly in the last european elections you just see these extremist parties like getting a solid foothold so you're gonna have 20 or 30 percent extremist folks in politics and our democracies are not structured for that type of setup. Our, our democracies are structured on consensus. And so that's going to be a little... Well, they're supposed to control the mischiefs of faction, according to the Federalist Papers. <laughs> you, yeah. Which is why you have this divided government constitutionally. So maybe it can yeah. hold together under that threat. But yeah. I agree, it's, it's a challenging time. The Federalist Papers didn't um, foresee Facebook. <laughs> no, but they did know what, they did know what it took... What, People let, battling let, with each other were like. Let, let, me, let me rephrase it a slightly different way. So one-to-one um, -one communication, person-to-person, -person, used to be one of the main ways people communicated. Then we got to one-to-many. People could publish a paper, you know, a one-to-many. The internet was kind of the very first, like, many-to-many -many setup where many people could talk to many people in the same community at the same time. With bots and automation and modern technologies, we're now in a zero-to-many world. And I think that has a completely different cast on it. And we're still figuring that out. It has a lot to do with trust, verification, et cetera. We live in a bot world. We live in an automated world. And uh, like we're just beginning to realize that. It doesn't mean we're not there, though, already. Uh, so I think that um, I think Trump is one of the first signs, but lots of other folks. It's a sign of automation, but it's also a sign of allowing communities to develop on their own. This, this whole setup is designed for change. I don't know exactly what that change looks like, but it sure feels like it right now. Chris, it's been uh, an honor to talk to you today. Very oh, enjoyable. <laughs> um, anything else you want to say? I think I'm good. Okay. Well, thank thank you, you so much for, for, for doing this. I, I think it's awesome. It's, it's good fun. Thank you. Yep.
That was Chris Lundberg of Fracture. He's at FractureTheK.com. I look forward to watching how Chris and Fracture help define the progressive data and technology space into the future. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. I would appreciate you subscribing to the podcast and leaving comments on iTunes and SoundCloud and elsewhere and sharing this with friends. And if you have suggestions for other people I should interview, please email me at nperlman at gmail.com.